God is a God who keeps his promises. He is faithful, and we've seen that throughout the story of the Israelites. God promises the Israelites that they will be his people, and he will be his God. So look, before we jump into Nehemiah, look at Exodus chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 6. And so this is, God has just brought them, he's brought them, he's about to bring them out of slavery in Egypt, and he's, and he's making this promise to Moses and through Moses to the people that he will save. Uh, and, and God says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a great great acts of judgment. So first of all, what's to notice here is God's giving a preview of what, we he'll, what he will do. He's making a promise to them. And just a few chapters later in Exodus, we see that he keeps his promise. He's faithful. He saves them, brings them out from under the burdens or slavery in Egypt, and starts to make them a people again. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptian. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This is the promise God makes to the Israelites through Moses at the beginning of the book of Exodus. And these are themes that continue on for a little while. And these are the things that God continues to point back to and see, look, this is who I am. I'm the God who brought you out of this. I'm the God who gave you a land. And so we have this consistent storyline of God being faithful and God keeping his promises. He promises the land uh, of the Canaanites will be their possession, and he promises that they will rule and that his glory will stretch through them to the ends of the earth. But they're exiled right? And so in between that moment where they're finally exiled and God making these promises, this up and down relationship the Israelites have with God. And it gets to a point finally after they've been a split kingdom for a few hundred years and the northern kingdom of Israel goes into exile and then the southern kingdom finally goes into exile and they're ruled by this nation of Persia, right? That's kind of overstretching and and taking over all this land and they're living as slaves again. And so, in a sense, they're right back where they started that we're just reading in Exodus, under someone else's rule and domain, which is going counter to the promises that God had made, that they will rule and that his glory will stretch out through them. But all throughout that, by his grace, God relentlessly pursues them. Right? In the midst of their disobedience, their unfaithfulness, their exile, because they didn't hold up their end of the covenant that they had made with God, God is gracious and gives them a way out. And so through Nehemiah, he kind of spearheads this effort to rebuild the city. And the city is important because it, it, was, symbol, it was a symbol for their identity as a nation. And so while the city walls don't mean necessarily that much to us today, in that particular time and place, it was a big deal. It means that they could defend the city, that they could live in the city again. It meant they had some definition as a people again. And what was interesting is this this tiny little group of people uh, in kind of perspective with the other nations around them. There may be 40 or 50,000 people that were going back into the city. What is interesting is the other nations were afraid of them. They kept trying to foil their plans, distract them from the mission, and it was out of fear that they tried to distract the plan that Nehemiah and God had through Nehemiah and the people of God to rebuild the city and to live in the city again. 
And so where we're at in this story is the wall's finished, right? So we can't make Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, just about the wall because that's only the first few chapters. And then we have the rest of this book. And, and what we've seen is after they build the wall, they take some time to remember all that were part of the story, that people matter, right? And God was calling out the people. And this is a whole team effort, not just Nehemiah's thing, not just Ezra's thing. And then in chapter eight, we have this epic worship service. They read the law again. Ezra gives this like six-hour sermon and reading the law, and people break up into smaller groups and try to understand what's happening, and they have the Levites and the priests kind of dispersed among the people, helping the people understand what the word of the Lord is. And then they, they understand it, they respond by worshiping, by confessing, by repenting of their sin and their father's sin, and then they make this covenant with God. They say, after all of that, they say, okay, God, we are ready to live differently because of all that you've done. We recognize our own sinfulness. We recognize the sinfulness of of the generations that have gone before us, and we're ready to wipe the slate clean and commit to live differently. And so that's where we're at last week with this, this covenant they make, and they highlight a few specific things. And we talked about that it doesn't necessarily mean they threw away everything that had come before, but they said in light of our recent history, we are committing, we are covenanting, to continue to study the scriptures, to lead our families well, to worship you, to give generously. All these things that they had neglected in their recent history, they are covenanting to live out purposefully this time around. And so where we're at today is in Nehemiah chapter 11. And so what we're going to do is we're going to tackle Nehemiah 11 and 12 today. And we're going to do this a little bit differently than we've been doing the last few weeks. And this is, sometimes we do this occasionally at Anthem, is is we typically will kind of go through uh, verse by verse or chapter by chapter or whatever and kind of help understand the meaning as we're going along. And occasionally we'll get to these moments in Scripture where we kind of take huge swaths of Scripture all together because it's one story and we can't really break it up, but that also means there's a ton of reading to be done. And so my challenge to you is uh, even in the midst of this, we're going to kind of touch on some themes, look at some highlights, but in 11 and 12, we're not going to read the whole thing this morning. And so I would highly encourage you to take some time this week and read through it and ask the Lord what he may be speaking to you through this text. And so that's one of the reasons that just for the sake of time, we're not going to read everything. But also, some of the parts we're not going to cover are lists of names, which you guys have done so well with uh, up until this point. And I've read some, and Steve has read some, and you guys have handled it like champs. It's awesome. And, and we read the names because the names are important, uh, because they're people that the Holy Spirit wants to highlight through the text. And so we give them honor, and we give the Bible honor by reading them. And so the reason we, we get to skip them today is because we've read these names before. These are familiar people, uh, so we don't have to rehash it necessarily. Uh, none of these names are names we haven't come across before. These are repeats from chapters uh, like 6 and 7 and then from a couple of weeks ago as well. Uh, but these are people that have contributed to the story of God. That's why they're here. And this right here in 11 and 12, it's an interesting story and maybe a little bit challenging uh, for us to grasp, but it's necessary. And the reason it's necessary is this big idea you're going to pick up on is that you're going to see that through these two chapters, God is ultimately calling us back to worship. Calling us back to worship Him, calling us back to greater worship of Him. And so you'll see that as we unpack a few different parts here, but as we embrace our identity as God's people, one of the things that will grow in us 
as it's growing in the people of God in the book of Nehemiah, is our capacity and our desire to worship. Which means, I'll take that a step further, that our growing capacity and desire to worship God is a sign of maturity. Thus, if our capacity and our desire to worship God is not growing, then our maturity is not growing as well. We see in chapter 8 that the people of God, they're built on the foundation of the Word. This is where everything starts. They come back to the Bible, or the Bible as they knew it at that time. And they worship, they confess, they make this covenant, and as they grow in their worship, it's growing from the root, or from being rooted in the Word of God. And as they are understanding their story more, as they're understanding God's story more, as they're understanding who He is and all He's done for them, their worship increases. Right? That's one of the things we've talked about before, that even when we look at our own lives, as we grow in the story of God, our awareness of our sinfulness, my sinfulness, becomes more apparent because we see who God is in a greater way. We see all that he's done in a greater way. We understand the story that he's weaving, and we understand just how broken we are and how broken we come to the table. But through that, that doesn't leave us shoegazing and wallowing in our guilt or our shame, but it actually causes us to look upon Jesus and worship in a greater way, because we understand all that he overcame to bring us into his family. So what's happening here in the text is they are understanding who they are and who God is. They're understanding their own sinfulness in a greater way, but that leads them to worship. And so as we grow in our maturity, understanding the story and the word of God and understanding our own selves and our own brokenness, it will lead us to greater worship. It'll lead us to a desire for worship. And before you get too ahead of yourselves, worship is not just the few songs we sing here on a Sunday. Paul talks about how it is a whole life posture. That it is literally giving worth to something and letting that worth be declared in our lives. And so they actually spell out a few ways that they are covenanting to God or committing or promising to God how they will worship. But let's go back to the beginning of chapter 11. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. This is already a different sermon than I'm intending to preach. So uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, like I said, we're not going to read the whole thing, but these first three verses help set up what's happening here. And just so you know, structurally, um, 11, verse 1 through, I'm turning my page, chapter 12, verse 26. This is, uh, this is all one, one structure here, and think of it with really big parentheses around it. Okay, so the narrative kind of halts for just a moment, and we have this little aside of what's happening in in the foreground here. And then in verse 27, the narrative picks up again. So this has happened a couple times in the book. It shouldn't be too unfamiliar to us, but we get to this point and just put a huge bracket at the beginning of uh, chapter 11, verse 1, and Nehemiah kind of describes what's happening here, and then in verse 27, undo bracket, and then the narrative continues. But in the very beginning of chapter 11, Nehemiah says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. That's important. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of the ten remained in other towns. Okay, so what does this tell us about what's happening in Jerusalem at the time? People aren't living in the city. They're doing all this work. We, got, we alluded to this in chapter 5, right, where people were coming into the city to work, but were leaving their families in the villages and on their farms and, and vineyards and all of this kind of thing. And so nobody's living in the city. 
The city is still not a great place to live. And so the leaders are the first to move in and to say, this is what God wants us to do, to move into the city. So the leaders move in, they cast lots, and about a tenth of the people move back into the city. Verse 2, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests and the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. So this paints a picture for us that the first ones to move into the city were the leadership of the people. So those priests, those who were serving in the temple, uh, like Nehemiah the governor and some of his people, those were the first people to move in. And the people blessed those people, which means they were happy they weren't going into the city, but they could bless somebody else going out into the city. Have you guys ever done that? Maybe talk to a missionary who's going to some crazy part of the world and like, oh, bless you. Thank you that I don't have to go there, that you're going there. It's kind of like what's happening right here. Uh, but still there was like a lottery and, and a tenth of the people came into Jerusalem. So when the exiles return to the promised land, right, they're coming back from the different areas scattered throughout. Living in Jerusalem was not an attractive prospect because the city still sort of laid in ruins. So we built the temple, right? That was what Ezra was doing and the, and the wave that came over with Zerubbabel, this, this other guy who we don't really touch on that much in Nehemiah, but they built the temple and it's effectively a religious community center at that point. Presence of God is not back, but it's, it's one thing. And then Nehemiah, they build the temples and the gates and the doors, but we really don't get a whole lot of highlighting on like houses or other things that are being built in the city. And we don't really know what's happening, but we can infer from this that Jerusalem is not a desirable place to live. It would be a substantial sacrifice. And people were still living in the surrounded villages. They had their farms. They had their vineyards, their olive trees. They had their life rooted in some of these outskirty type villages. And so what is an interesting question to ask at this point is have you ever felt God's calling or leading to do something that is unfamiliar or uncomfortable? Something that would uproot you out of your comfort zone and into an area of unknownness. Have you ever felt that before? Because that is exactly what's happening with the people of God here. Nehemiah is telling us about an uncomfortable reality that even after the wall was built, the people don't want to live in Jerusalem. It's still a sacrifice. And there are multiple reasons that could have caused this, but it was a situation that needed to be remedied, right? Nehemiah sees this as a problem to be solved, that people need to come back into the city. And there's a, a host of reasons this could be the case, but I think two that fit with the narrative of Nehemiah, and the first one is that Jerusalem was not built to be a relic. It was not built to be just a symbol, Right? It wasn't this check-off-the-list thing that maybe if they travel from their village into the city, build the walls, and go back, everything will be all right. It was a physical reminder of the place that God dwells. Well, he dwells in the nation of Israel. His temple is in Jerusalem. Right? That was the center of where God's presence was for this nation. And so it wouldn't make any sense to build the wall and then abandon the city. And the second is that Jerusalem's existence, its strength, its sustainability are testimonies to the power of God. That God brought a people out of exile to rebuild this city that was once, once known and feared with all the other nations surrounding them. This was to demonstrate the power of God. When Jerusalem was rebuilt, it caused, it caused the enemies of Israel to be afraid. Right? That's why they tried to distract from the mission. 
and his temple is in Jerusalem, and it's the center of life and faith and worship for the Jews. And so the leaders of Israel know this. They know why it's important, and they know it's a sacrifice, and they're choosing to live in the city regardless. And this is an interesting parallel to some of the themes we see in the New Testament, in New Testament Christianity, in this life we're called to live. That our calling is not necessarily uh, to a specific physical location like it was with the Jews in the book of Nehemiah, but it's to the nations, right? It's to the entire earth. That is our calling. And so the question is often brought up in the New Testament is, are we able and willing to go where God calls us, even when it's costly and inconvenient and takes us out of our comfort zone? Jerusalem was all of these things. The leaders of Israel volunteered to go forward to pave a way for everybody else. And these are themes we see in the New Testament where the apostles went first to pave the way for the rest of the believers to come along in the journey. Paul, on his missionary journeys, was paving the way, was starting these new church plants so that other believers could live and thrive and and flourish. And I was kind of reading up on this. One of the commentators I was reading was referring to this as, as similar to when missionaries go out to hard places to reach for the gospel and when people volunteer to hold babies at a Sunday service. It's both. Often, I know it seems crazy because I think our minds will automatically think like, oh man, I have to go to India or something to really follow or live out the calling of God in my life. And I don't know, maybe, I'm not going to tell you no for you, but probably God has already called you where he has you. And he's asking you to step out in faith where he already has you. So he's let you live in this glorious place called Ventura. He's given you a job or classes or friends or family And before he is ever going to call you anywhere else, he has called you there and is asking you to live and step out in faith there with those friends, with those families, in that class, at that job. He's asking you to be faithful exactly where he's already called you. So one key question for us to, to think through and to process is, is if we are one of God's people, if we're one of God's children, what are we doing that is specifically maybe uncomfortable or out of the norm or sacrificial to serve the kingdom of God? And I'm not saying all of life should be like drudgery and terrible and miserable or anything like that, but one of the themes we see consistently throughout the Bible is that God will take us out of our comfort zone a lot. He will call us to do things that maybe seem inconvenient at the time that maybe seem like we might get mocked for it, or we might get shamed for it, or people will look at that and think we're a little bit crazy. But God is consistently calling us to live a life that warrants those kinds of questions. Why? So Jesus tells us that people would see our good works and know the Father, that we live in this way of living in faith exactly where God has put us so that the world would see that we live different and wonder why. Not because you're particularly awesome. I'm sure you are, but that's not the reason. It's so that they would look to the Father. They would know who God is. Jesus tells us in John 13 that even the way we love each other will tell the world who he is. 
I found this quote uh, by, he's been one of my favorite theologians or commentators on this particular book, and, and I think there's one person in here who knows who this is, Warren Worsby, right? All right, there we go, perfect. He's an old school commentator, but he has this great quote about what's happening in Nehemiah 11 and 12, and he says, never underestimate the importance of simply being physically present in the place where God wants you. You may not be asked to perform some dramatic ministry, but simply being there is a ministry. The men, women, and children who helped to populate the city of Jerusalem were serving God, their nation, and future generations by their step of faith. I think often we'll think about calling, we'll think about obedience or faith, and it's always this dramatic ministry, as he says, or it's this epic thing we have to do, and sometimes it's just being physically present where God would have you. And then I'll add in, available for what God would have you do. Willing. One of the things they covenanted to just a few chapters later was they would live in a purposeful way. Right? They would not sort of accidentally stumble into these opportunities, but they would live with eyes open to see what God is doing and join him in that. And I think that's the calling we have in Nehemiah 11 and 12 is that sometimes where God has already put you just being present and seeing what he's doing and how you can join in is what God is asking you to do. As Nehemiah works through these lists of names, uh, of lists of priests and Levites and everything that are serving and, and kind of what we get through 11.4 through the end uh, or through the middle of chapter 12, it's kind of this list, but one of the things worth pointing out here is the continuity of God's story. And so what's important to remember here is in chapter 12, verses 1, and then verse 26, we have an interesting picture of who the names are, like kind of who the priests are. And and what this tells us is that there's a couple of generations coming together. That what Ezra and Zerubbabel had started uh, within the city of Jerusalem, the people who came over with Nehemiah are continuing. There's this continuity to the story of God. Look at verse 1 in chapter 12. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel and the son of Shealtiah and Jeshua and Suraniah and Jeremiah and Ezra and so on. It goes to list a bunch of names. Right, so these are the Levites and the priests who came up with Zerubbabel. Look at verse 26. These were in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Josdiak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest, and the scribe. So Ezra and Zerubbabel are kind of fulfilling similar functions in different time periods, and God is fusing their stories together, reminding us once again that we are not disconnected from this, that God is continuing to work in his people, and he's fusing these generations together to remind the people that they are not disconnected from what he's done before. One of the big themes in Nehemiah has been the continuity of God's story. And we see so many lists of names in here because it's important to see how the people of God are connected. Spoiler, the book of Matthew starts with a bunch of names, (laughs) right? And it starts with a bunch of names to tell us where Jesus came from in this lineage, And so this is a consistent theme throughout all of Scripture that the continuity of God's story is important for us to see and to notice. And what's significant about kind of this passage in chapter 12 is we basically have two historical generations of priests and Levites here. And so folks who are still serving in the worship of sacrifice and praise and vigilance as they did an earlier generation— And right, so what we see is that the continuing theme is that the people are worshiping God. 
And they are showing the next generation how to worship God. So these lists of names pave the way for this epic worship service in the city that we're about to see in the middle part of chapter 12. Remembering God's story helps us worship. It prepares us to worship. It gives us reason and motivation for worshiping God. When we come in with a deep awareness of our own journey, when we come in with a a deep awareness of God's story and all that he's done and, and what that has meant for our lives, it gives our worship width and depth and breath. It it gives this motivation for us to come together collectively and sing or disperse throughout the week and worship God in our different areas. It gives us a different motivation than just like, oh yeah, God, he created stuff. I should sing about him. Or these other people are singing, I should sing with them. And so what's happening here is the people of God are saturating themselves in the word and the story of God and it's preparing them to worship well. The end of the book of Hebrews talks about how we should approach worship with God with gratefulness and reverence. That he would smile, that he would smell the incense of our worship, that he would look upon how we're worshiping and be glad. I think that's what's happening here in the book of Nehemiah. This was the, maybe the greatest day in the history of this particular community of God's people. And Israel was back in the land. They were more secure. They were grounded in scripture. And, and, it's, and it's probably been this, this moment where they feel like they're a nation again. They're God's people again. They'd succeeded in rebuilding the walls and establishing the law as Israel's authority again. They're putting their lives under the authority of God's law. And they're reorganizing the temple ministry in in harmony with God's will. Okay, so not only are they rearranging life in the land and kind of life in, in families and placing themselves under the scriptures, but what we see here in the last chapter and these two chapters as well is that they're sort of getting the temple right. They're getting the worship back to the way that God has asked them to worship. And so we're going to read a little bit of the story starting in verse 27. So chapter 12, 27, follow along with me. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites out in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophilites. That is a tongue twister right there. Okay, so people are gathering together for another one of these massive worship services. Also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and as as Maveth, for the singers had built for themselves the villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up unto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went south to the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hosea and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezriah, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, uh, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, and son of Zachur, and son of Asaph. And his relatives, Shemaiah, see, we tricked you, we're doing names today, I told you, you know, so got to watch out for Nehemiah. And his relatives, Shemaiah, Azrael, Melilah, Galilah, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanai, with musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, went before them. 
That was all the people that went south. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. And above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshaniah, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hanel, and the tower of Hundred, to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs, those who gave thanks, stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And the priest, Alekayim, Mesai, Meninmin, Micaiah, Elonin, Elo, I'm having a hard time this morning. Elo, Nai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehonanan, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Epic, epic singing. Two great choirs go to the north and to the south, and they're singing praise to God. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard in all of the region. And what you're hearing about is one of the most amazing worship services recorded in Scripture. And there are a few of them. There are various dedications of temples and tabernacles that come to mind, but this one is unique, and it's, and it's beautiful. And the basic idea of what we're hearing is that the leadership of Israel arranged the singers and the musicians around the walls of Jerusalem, and there was this procession and beautiful music and rejoicing. And what's important to, to, to kind of take away from this is look at how, look at the detail that Nehemiah recorded about this particular worship service. We didn't have this when they read the law in chapter 8 and they were responding in worship. There is great attention paid to how the people will worship God. They're meticulously arranging these singers to go here and these singers to go here and to use these instruments. And there's just such an organization and moment around how they will worship God here. And we have these, these leaders in the nation of Israel leading the people in worship. Very much like what Casey and the band were doing for us this morning. This is our, some of our biblical grounds for why we have worship leaders, why we have a planned worship service even. There is such meticulous care given to how the people of God will worship. And the end result was that the whole nation was rejoicing. And the nations surrounding them heard their rejoicing. I think it's beautiful that God is worthy of this kind of effort and care taken in how the people respond to him and worship. And the worship service concludes at the very end with the taking of an offering. It's one of the things they covenanted to in the last chapter, and it's one of the things that they are living out and practicing here at the end of chapter 12, starting in verse 44. And on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests, and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. So people are giving and they're kind of organizing all the first fruits and the tithes and the givings for the support of the temple ministry, the worship ministry. And they performed their service of their God in the service of purifications, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. 
For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, were the directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron." So the priests and the Levites were the people that were given for specific purposes of carrying out these these worship services, these purification rituals, kind of anything that was happening with the temple and the worship of God and people making sacrifices. This was their job. And from the very beginning of the law, God did not want them distracted doing other things. He wanted their singular focus to be on serving the people by taking care of the temple duties, by handling sacrifices and cleanliness and purification, by leading worship services, by designated singers and choirs and musicians to go into certain places to lead the people. And so what we have here is this spotlight and the reminder that God wanted his people to be focused on leading the nation in worship and to not let kind of all the other things in life take away from that. And so the people were commanded to take care of them to bring their tithes, their first fruits, their contributions for the sake of the temple ministry. One commentator I was reading put it uh, like this, that the people funded the worship of God. That it was clear that God wanted worship to happen in a certain way and that required people to have set aside dedicated time to make that happen. And to do that, the rest of the people had to chip in to make sure they have the time and the energy and the effort to lead the people in worship and in sacrifices. What you see here is that everyone took it as their own personal responsibility to be obedient to God's law. And that provided the means for the services of God, the sacrifices, the worship, the leadership, to continue on in, in daily operations. The way we've been going through Nehemiah, we have seen that it's the desire of the people to reestablish themselves as God's people. And this is one of those facets, right? God's people built their lives on Scripture again. They were confessing and repenting of sin. They were faithfully and sacrificially serving. They were worshiping God, and they were giving financially to the work that God is doing. These are all facets of being part of this reestablished identity of God's people. And these are all the things that we see in addition to the wall project that occupies the first few chapters. Right? The wall is almost just a means to an end, to get people into the city, to get people reengaged with what God is doing. Once they're there, they start living in this identity that God reminds them of that Nehemiah reminds them of, that Ezra reminds them of. As they go to the scripture, they're reminded of their story and who God is and, and how that's made them to be a people, and they start wanting to live in that way. And if you've ever had those, those moments where you maybe just have this, I don't, don't want to use any fancy language, just this moment where you realize who God is in a, in a greater way or, or what he's done in your life in, in a maybe a special or unique way, one of those life milestone moments where you can look and see this distinct change and understanding in who God is. And that knee-jerk reaction for us is, is to live differently. He's like, I got to do something about this, right? I got I to tell some other people. I got to like live this different way. And it's almost like this, this internal knee-jerk for us that when we come to this moment where we understand who God is and what he's been doing, there's this knee-jerk reaction to go and do. And it's always in light of what God's already done and in light of our identity in him. 
But yeah, that's, that still happens. We see we understand the, the graciousness of God or maybe his, his spirit in us and maybe a moment of worship or prayer or talking with other people. You just kind of grasp the depths of his love. You're like, I got to do something. This is what's happening right here with the people of God. They're having this moment together as a nation where they understand God. They know his word. They're, they're coming back to him. They say, we have to live differently. We have to live in light of all that God has done. We have to worship again. How do we worship? I don't know. There's this festival. Let's, let's live out this festival again, right? And they go into these booths and these tabernacles. They say, what else should we do? Oh, we should confess all our sin and the sins of everyone who's gone before us. Let's wipe the slate clean. What else? Oh, let's covenant to God. Let's make a commitment to live differently. I want to pursue him. We want our kids to pursue him and our kids' kids to pursue him. So let's make this marker and let's covenant this time to pursue God. And here they're saying, we have to sing. I don't know if you ever had those moments where you're like, I just got to sing. Uh, It happens sometimes, I think often to all of us, probably more to Casey than the rest of us, but these moments where we just say, like, I have to sing. Like, God is doing something incredible I have to, just something that words can't express. I have to sing, and they have this epic worship service. They send choirs to the different parts of the city to lead the people in this response. And what we see at the very end, they give financially, really what that's doing is it's just telling us it encompasses their entire life, their livelihood, their farms, vineyards, their families, their material possessions. It includes every aspect of their life that they come before God and say, we have to worship him with everything. We're not going to let material possessions stand in our way. We're not going to let our, our defense uh, nature of the city stand in the way. We're not going to let our fear of surrounding nations coming to overtake us stand in the way. We're not going to let our, our farms or our vineyards stand in the way. We're going to worship God. And it comes from this motivation of knowing who God is. That's what's happening here. And honestly, there's nothing about these particular patterns that we read about, read about that has really changed in our modern-day identity as God's people. There's still areas that we can press into today, just like they were pressing into then, but our perspective is a little bit different. And really, I think our perspective should be more and more of what we see here. Right? I think about the people who were living in Jerusalem in 400 BC. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't have the full, complete picture of what was to come. They were playing a part in the story of something that would direct us to Jesus that was coming. And look at the worship service they had. Look at how their lives were totally overtaken and changed. Look at their commitment to the word of God. Why should we expect anything less than what we see in Nehemiah? We have this picture of scripture of this like sort of snowball that keeps rolling. As God's story continues, that the more of himself he reveals to people, the greater our response is. When the gospel takes us over, it orients our entire lives towards the heart of God. It shapes everything, our our mission, our purpose, our vision, our dreams, our families, how we see the world. The presence of God consumes our minds. And as as it does that, it causes us to lead other people to a place of worship. I think worship of God is incredibly missional. And not just once again the singing. Please don't caught up, get caught up in just that. That is an epic part and an important moment for us as the gathered people. But worship is our entire lives being oriented towards God. 
And that is incredibly missional because people will look at that kind of life and wonder why. Wonder how. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? How are you doing that? And so as we, as the snowball occurs and as we understand God in a greater way, our worship is magnified and the way we live our lives is so much more oriented towards God and it causes other people to say, why? Why are you living that way? Worship looks a little different in light of the resurrection. Absolutely, that's one of the, that is the distinctive marker of the difference between us and the people in Nehemiah's. Worship looks different in light of the resurrection. And so some of the things they were doing, like purification, sacrifices, these different rituals that God had asked them to do have been perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. And so we take communion instead to remember Jesus, who was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute for us. So we don't have to bring goats here on a Sunday and cut off their heads. It'd get really messy in here, right? So we don't have to go through these different purification rituals. Jesus perfectly fulfilled everything that came before. And so our response as members in the family of God is to worship in gratefulness, worship in in reverence, in remembrance, in the joy of our salvation. And so in essence, Nehemiah eleven twelve could be about a lot of things. It's ultimately about worshiping God. How as we understand the story of God more and more, it leads us to greater and greater worship. And so as Casey and the gang comes up here, they're going to lead us through some songs that are meant to direct our attention to God. Right? They're meant to, to cause us to remember God's story and to be thankful and to be celebratory. And we also have communion on the white table right over there. We have communion available every week. I know that's different for some people, but it's important to us because communion is the climax of any gathered setting of of Christians. It is the moment that has changed history forever, and that's what we celebrate through the bread and the juice, the crackers and the juice, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood. And so for us, what we're going to do is as we sing, uh, make your way, these next three songs, over to the table and receive communion. And it's remembering all that Jesus did, his sacrifice, his death on the cross, his resurrection. It nullifies our, our need to bring in goats or doves or anything. It nullifies our need to be purified before we walk in. And it's through him that is our motivation for worship. That is our foundation for worshiping God. That is our foundation for living differently. It's because of Christ that you and I are welcomed into the family of God, adopted as sons and daughters, given a new identity and a new way to live in light of that identity. And so please, in the next couple of songs, go over and, and take communion. Uh, we also have that, that wood box over there. It's for giving if you want to give. That's part of our worship as well. And I think uh, as we worship, one of the things I want you to kind of hone in on in, in your own hearts and even consider as we're, as we're singing a little bit is I want to you to consider our motivation for worship. What I mean by that is a lot of us, especially in like a more Western culture, especially in a Southern California culture, can equate doing things for God with the love God has for you. And so what I want to do is remind you gently in the gospel that you can't do anything to make God love you more or make, you, make him love you less, right? No amount of church attendance or community group engagement or serving the poor and the needy in our city 
will make God love you more or less. What we find in Scripture is that our identity is a fixed status. We were bought with the blood of Christ. We are chosen, predestined. We are adopted. We are holy and blameless because of Jesus. It is out of that motivation that our lives are totally different. It is out of that motivation that we live with an intentional awareness of where God has put us and how we're to live in faith in those spaces. And it's out of that motivation that we can sing and and celebrate because honestly, without that motivation, I don't have too many reasons to sing or celebrate. I'm not that good. That's why these songs aren't about me. You aren't that good. That's why these songs aren't about you. These songs are about God because Jesus has done everything necessary to bring you into his family. That's why we sing. That's why we take communion. That's why we give. That's why we live lives that are different. It causes people to ask, what are you doing? That's why. Okay, so even in these few moments, they're going to sing uh, some songs for us, and I want you to kind of uh, uh, grapple with that a little bit. And if we approach Christianity, Jesus, as us trying to achieve something or needing to get to a certain level before God loves us, ask him to speak truth in your heart this morning. That is not the case. And if you like, we'll have some people available for prayer. I'll volunteer Jen and Dan and Steve and Kevin and Vanessa. They'll just kind of hang on the sides. And if you want to pray with someone, if that is maybe the internal struggle specifically, uh, they would love to pray the gospel over you. And even if you're not, if you just love to receive prayer, they're available, of course. Um, but that, that's, I think, what I want us to deal with this morning as a church. That our motivation for worship is God himself, not you. And that's a good thing. Is a joyful thing. So would you stand? I'm going to pray over you and we'll, we'll do some singing together. Father, you are so good. Thank you for stories like Nehemiah, stories uh, that sometimes seem confusing or irrelevant. Uh, but God, thank you that this is our story, that throughout history, you've been relentlessly pursuing people. Despite our best efforts, you keep coming after us. And so for that, we thank you. It's your grace that brought us into your family. It's your mercy that you don't hold any of our past transgressions against us. That we are made new and clean in Christ Jesus. And so God, would that be the magnified truth in our hearts this morning? There's nothing we need to do. You've already done everything. And there's a freedom in that. And so God, I ask that we would experience some of that freedom this morning. Holy Spirit, would you lead us to a greater worship of Jesus? Would you show us Jesus this morning? Amen.